For our series of the ADC's competition talks, we have today Eric Bosner, Kirkland and Eldest Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. Professor Eric Bosner has written extensively on law and legal theory. In recent years, he has focused his research in labor markets. He has written a book, Why Has Antitrust Failed Workers, to be published in 2021, and he has testified also on labor market issues before the FTC. Eric, I'm really truly delighted to do this podcast with you. And I must say that this is the very first podcast in which we discuss labor market issues, and we could not have a better expert for this. I know that your views are that there's still a lot of under-enforcement and a litigation gap in the U.S., but probably this is even more so in this side of the Atlantic. So this discussion is much needed here. So if you allow me, Eric, I would start by asking if you could provide us with an overview of the evolution of competition policy in the U.S. concerning labor uh, monopsony and no poach agreements. Uh, yes, I'd be happy to. And, and, and thanks for having me on your, your podcast. So in the United States, competition law, what we call antitrust law, has of course been an important part of the legal system since the 19th century. And it's also the case that from a very early stage in the history of competition law in the United States, it was understood that competition law applies to labor markets as well as to product markets. And so what this means is that if an employer engages in anti-competitive behavior that harms workers and is a violation of the uh, antitrust laws, it could be held liable for that reason. Now, despite that, the litigation and regulation relating to employers specifically is relatively recent. Uh, there have been a handful of cases before the 21st century, but most of the recent important cases go back to about 2010. And it was in 2010 that the U.S. government discovered that the main Silicon Valley tech companies, including Apple, Google, Pixar, and eBay, had engaged in a no-poaching agreement. So under this no-poaching agreement, they um, agreed not to poach from each other their top computer programmers. Once this was discovered, the uh, Justice Department brought a lawsuit against uh, these companies. Uh, they settled. They were also subsequently sued by their workers and required to pay uh, many hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. Now, what was striking about the Silicon Valley scandal was that these were obviously very sophisticated companies with large legal staffs, and yet their CEOs, the top people at the companies, including Steve Jobs, engaged in what in U.S. law is blatantly illegal activity. And the fact that it occurred was a bit of a surprise. Um, at the same time, because there had been so little antitrust enforcement against uh, employers in the past, it may not have been that surprising that the CEOs of this company thought they could get away with this type of agreement. So after that happened, the U.S. government began to clarify that it took labor monopsony seriously. It took no poaching agreements uh, between employers seriously, wage fixing agreements, and other types of anti-competitive behavior among major companies. Now, in the last 10 years since then, there have been a number of additional uh, scandals and uh, prominent uh, regulatory actions and lawsuits involving employers who have been accused of engaging in anti-competitive behavior. One topic that has received a lot of attention has involved agreements that are not technically no poaching agreements, but are similar to no poaching agreements. These are agreements between employers and their own workers 
under which the worker agrees that after she leaves her existing employer, she will not work for a competitor of that employer. Now, like in Europe, these types of agreements called covenants not to compete are generally subject to restrictions that are not really regarded as competition law restrictions. They're just restrictions that are out there. But in the United States, it's clear that non-competes are also subject to competition law. Um, there haven't been any successful lawsuits against non-competes that I'm aware of, but I expect that there will be in the future, partly because um, a, a big wave of academic literature suggests that non-competes do contribute to the cartelization of labor markets and have resulted in the suppression of wages uh, below the competitive level. So along with these major scandals and litigations and regulatory actions, there's also been a wave of academic work which has revealed that labor markets in the United States are highly concentrated, that in concentrated labor markets, wages tend to be lower than in competitive wa uh, labor markets, as one would expect, and that um, there are a range of anti-competitive agreements that employers enter into, which may very well have the effect of suppressing wages and reducing competition. Thank you, Eric. And it's very interesting to see also competition policy being embedded into a wider uh, policy debate, which is, uh, I think, very important also. Um, now, on this side of the Atlantic, as you know, these uh, very high profile developments in the US uh, uh, are not mirrored uh, in terms of uh, so many cases, although we do have uh, some uh, cases where no poach agreements, for example, was treated within uh, wider cartels. We have no single poach, no poach uh, uh, cases. Um, uh, I, I must say that the ADC has just prevented pure no poach uh, agreement from hurting football uh, players and limiting their ability to move between clubs. But uh, what, what is striking is that there is clearly probably some under enforcement in this area, but the effects and the harm that these agreements bring about are very clear. So can you share with us what you think are the main sources of harm to competition that stem from no poach agreements for both workers and consumers? Sure, and I should mention also that in the United States, there, there is actually a history of litigation against uh, sports leagues the baseball, what you guys call football and what we call football. There have been, and, and the reason I think for that is that these leagues often necessarily publicize their rules and, and, and they do restrict poaching of um, team members for reasons that are, are a mix of bad and good. So there's been a lot of litigation about that in the United States as well. So what, why? So what is the harm? Uh, at least in, in, in American law and in, you know, American economic thinking, the purpose of antitrust law is to, uh, you, might, you might say, maximize output. Uh, and if output is maximized, prices will be low, and that will make people better off. Now, from the standpoint of the consumer, this is very well understood. If you have, let's say, um, two sellers who engage in a price fixing agreement, that means that they're not going to compete with each other by lowering prices. And that means that consumers will pay higher prices than they would in the absence of this agreement and that less of the product will be produced. There'll be fewer purchases of the of the goods because prices are higher. So the injury to the public is well understood. Now, when we turn to labor monopsony, the injury 
is a little bit more complicated, but it's really not that different. Now, of course, we distinguish between workers and consumers, but we should also keep in mind that they're the same people, that workers are the people who buy things and consumers need to work in order to earn income so that they can buy things. So the direct victims of a no poaching agreement among employers are workers. And the logic is very similar as in the uh, seller side. If you have two employers and they want to hire people so that they can increase production, one source of hires is their competitor. And so if these two firms are trying to hire people away from each other, that will cause wages to increase. Now, this increase in wages obviously benefits the workers. They're better off with higher wages than they would be otherwise. And more people will be employed, so employment will be higher. As wages increase, people who might otherwise be unemployed will realize that they're actually going to do better if they enter the market and go back to work. So if the competition authority comes and prohibits these two hypothetical employers from fixing wages or agreeing not to poach each other's workers, the workers will benefit in the form of higher wages and other people generally will benefit because jobs will become available that otherwise were not available. Well, what about the consumers? And some people think that if the workers are made better off, that is offset by harms to the consumers. And the logic usually is something like this. Well, if the employers have to pay higher wages, then their costs increase. And if their costs increase, they'll pass on those higher costs to consumers in the form of higher prices. Now, that actually is not true. That, that's a mistake. Um, and this is widely understood among economists. The effect of the no poaching agreement among employers will almost always be to hurt consumers as well. And, and the logic works like this. Think of these two employers. Currently, they're employing a lot of workers and they're competing with each other. And they, as a result, they produce a lot of goods that are then sold to consumers. Now they enter into a wage fixing agreement or no poaching agreement. The result is that their wages are going to go down. And as the wages go down, people will quit because they're not earning enough money. And as people quit, that means production will go down. And as production goes down, that means that there'll be fewer goods available for consumers in the downstream market. Because there are fewer goods available for consumers, while presumably demand remains constant, the prices will go up. So on the, on the consumer side of the market, you have both higher prices and you have less output. So the consumers are injured in two ways, just like the workers. And then remember, because the consumers and the workers are, you know, depending on market, how the markets work, often the same people, you see, you know, people will have lower incomes on average and they'll pay higher prices. So everybody's made worse off by the uh, collusive agreement between the employers. Let me just add one more thing, which is that while as a matter of economic theory, one would expect that an agreement between employers will harm consumers, it may be as a practical matter difficult for a regulatory authority to prove that harm to a court. Because markets are very complicated and uh, evidence is very difficult to obtain, data is hard to analyze. My view, and I think this will be the view in the United States as well, is that if you can show collusive behavior among employers, there should be a presumption that consumers are harmed as well. 
And you know, you might allow the employers to rebut the presumption if somehow they find evidence that in this particular case something else has happened. But I do believe that the appropriate legal uh, approach to this problem is to create a presumption that uh, consumers are injured rather than requiring the regulatory agency to actually prove that prices increased as a result of the collusion between the employers. Indeed, and that closes the circle of, of how there is harm to workers, consumers, and probably benefits to the to the firms as the they firm. are appropriating <laughs> these these surplus. We have talked already till now, Eric, about antitrust proceedings and and labor monopsony. But now moving to mergers. In the last uh, a year or so, officials at both the DOJ and the FTC have announced that the agencies will start looking at labor market effects when they review mergers. And actually, uh, um, monopsony uh, is now referred to in the new vertical merger guidelines. So what can we read about this, uh, of these uh, announcements and how would this work in practice in terms of merger review? Sure. So how would, well, I think what, it, what it, these announcements mean is that uh, in the United States, employers should be very careful. It, it seems very clear to me that both the FTC and the Department of Justice now take labor monopsony very seriously. I also don't think it matters much which party is in power. Uh, I think even Republicans who are otherwise uh, not always sympathetic to workers but, you know, understand that labor monopsony is harmful to the economy as a whole, to workers, to consumers, to everybody. So part of what's going on is that the regulators understand that with this long history of non-enforcement of uh, anti-competitive, uh, against anti-competitive behavior in labor markets, it's understandable that employers believe that they're not in jeopardy and the agencies are trying to tell them that they are in jeopardy. Now, what does this mean for merger analysis? I think that um, at some point the horizontal merger guidelines will be revised and a section will be added to address how exactly the government will review the labor market effects of mergers. And I think this new section will say something like this. It will say that when two large firms propose to merge, the government will look at all of the labor markets in which those firms employ people. Um, and so if they're very large national or multinational firms, there might be dozens or hundreds of labor markets across the country where they employ people. These could be factories, they could be office buildings. Uh, if you imagine, for example, two large firms that manufacture goods like you know, laptops or cars, each firm might have factories in dozens of different uh, areas in the country. The government would then look in every one of those areas in which the two firms um, have employees, and they will identify the areas in which both firms have employees. Um, if there's a particular city, let's say, where one firm has employees and the other firm does not, the merger will not have any effect on the labor market in that city. But if there's a city where both where employees of both firms are located, then the merger will affect the labor market in that city. Now, one then has to look at the different types of job occupations. Each occupation is a separate labor market. So for example, a manufacturer might employ uh, people who assemble goods on an assembly line, information technology people, clerical work, uh, secretaries, janitors, and so forth. You look at each of these markets, each of these occupations, 
and you would ask what uh, would be the impact of the merger on the market structure of that occupation. So let's just take as an example, information technology workers. If each firm, let's say, has a factory in a, in a town and each factory employs a few dozen information technology workers, we would simply look at what the market share of the two employers are. So let's suppose the market share of each employer is 10%. That is, each employer employs 10% of all the information technology workers who live in this area. So as a result of the merger, we would have a, a more concentrated information technology worker labor market. Uh, a single firm would now have 20% of the market, and then presumably there would be other fir firms that have the other 80%. Whereas before we had a situation where each of the two firms had 10% and everybody else had 80%. And then we would ask ourselves whether this increase in labor market concentration would likely reduce wages by a substantial amount. Now, if the market share goes up from you know, two firms with 10% to one firm with 20%, the answer may be it's not gonna have much effect on wages. But if these are very large employers who dominate local markets, and let's suppose each starts off with 40% of the labor market, and as a result of the merger end up with 80%, well, that would be the type of labor market impact that would create a serious concern and almost surely result in lower wages. And so the government would then say to these two firms, you know, we're not going to allow you to merge unless, you know, you could do something about the labor market impact in this particular market or any other market where something similar happened. Of course, the firm would always have a, uh, the ability to try to rebut the presumption that the merger will reduce wages and just as they can with the product on the product market side. And the firm might argue that if it merges, it will be able to use its employees more efficiently and pay them more. Those arguments tend not to be very successful. So it's possible that the merger would be blocked, or if it's not blocked, uh, maybe the firms could, um, or sorry, the, or, the, or the government could say to the firms, if you sell off these factories to a third party, then maybe we would allow the rest of the merger to proceed. But the, you know, the overall structure would be very similar to what the government already does when it evaluates the product market effects of mergers. Well, very systematic uh, and, and very methodological uh, answer, uh, Eric. So thank you for that. Uh, now, in order to wrap up, a last question for which I ask for your for a very succinct answer in order to wrap up our, our podcast. In, in the US, covenants not to compete between workers and employers are subject to the antitrust laws. Do you think that antitrust laws are the suitable instrument for evaluating and competes? I do think that that is the case. Um, we have a long historical tradition in the United States, which I believe is similar to Europe's, where non-competes are subject to restrictions for duration and scope under you know, law that is not regarded as competition law. It seems pretty clear that those rules have failed in the United States as evidence accumulates that non-competes in fact do cartelize labor markets and result in lower wages and less competition. So it seems to me that a stronger legal framework is necessary and stronger sanctions are required. And that's exactly what the antitrust laws supply. Perfect, Eric. Thank you so much for the time you took to do this Comcast with us. It was a great pleasure and an insightful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed being here.